Expression is one of the most powerful tools we have. A voice, a pen, a keyboard. The real change which must give to people throughout the world their human rights must come about in the hearts of people. We must want our fellow human beings to have rights and freedoms which give them dignity. Article 19 is the voice in the room. Hello and welcome to Article 19. My name is Marty Malloy, President at Tamman, and I am the host for our conversation today. I am joined by my co-host, Kristen Waitaki, author, teacher, mentor, and I'm very happy to say colleague. And I'm also joined today by my former co-host, Michael Mangos. Hello. Today we're going to talk to, hello, Michael. We're going to talk to Mike about, he's jumping right away, about what his executive journey has been what's next for him why he's my former co-host and uh, we'll talk about accessibility and, and maybe even some other technological things beyond that but to set the stage for folks last year or so a little over last year mike stepped back from his ownership and his ceo role at tamman to focus on health family and to pursue some new startup opportunities Mike still supports Tamman as a senior solutions architect, and he will always have a place at Tamman as one of its co-founders and people we love the most. But we wanted to bring Mike on to talk about transitions and evolutions, making hard decisions, and what it means to go from 100 miles an hour to something a lot slower, especially as a leader learning to rebalance life. So we'll also be getting into some of the other things that I mentioned. If anyone who's ever listened to Article 19 knows, Mike and I have a tendency to diverge into who knows where paths. So it will not surprise me that this becomes a two, three, or four part Article 19 series. I think, I think Marty, we, we affectionately call that meandering. Lots of meandering. As was traditional on Article 19, I have a couple of fake facts about Mike. Fake fact number one, as CEO, he worked so late into the night that he's actually slept on the couch in the office, an equivalent of six and a half years. Another fake fact about Mike is he is the person responsible for the hip trend of concert goers wearing big earplugs at concerts because he looked so damn cool in them at the Green Day concert in 2003. And finally, the last fake fact about Mike is he wanted to originally name Tamman Hyper Mega Global Enterprise Inc., but he felt it didn't convey the grandeur and scale he was really going for. <laughs> So as with all fake facts, these in particular have a lot of truth to them. Is there anything you wanted to add to any of those, Mike? <laughs> no, no. But the company name was touch and go there for more than a hot minute. <laughs> do you remember what some of the other like original? Uh, I, I do, but I'm too embarrassed to speak them on no. air. The amount of either hubris or you know, like way too much aspiration or desperation in all of those names. <laughs> It turned out that concatenating Jeff's name and my name into a single simple name that is Googleable and doesn't resolve to anything else was the smartest thing we could have done. I do have a Google alert for Tamman, and what I often get when it's not anything of ours is some kind of chromium mining company. I don't know if you've ever looked in. <laughs> just always found that to be so. Odd. So remember, the company was founded in 2007. Not that the internet was in its infancy, but it certainly didn't have the breadth and reach of like every piece of human knowledge ever created or recorded in one place. <laughs> Not much came up. There was somebody, I won't name him because we tried to buy the domain name from him for a long time, but the Tam man, he would sometimes come up, but he did not have a big internet presence. So for As what it's worth. So many Canadians do not have still to this day. Don't rag on the Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump in. And set the stage a little bit. You just mentioned you started Tamman with Jeff Tamburino in 2007, and you were really, you know, off and running from day one. You you had been running previously. And for context for listeners, if they don't know, I mean, most of them would not know. I mean, Jeff and I each had our own businesses, and I like to refer to us as we were like tech mercenaries out there doing jobs for companies and individuals. Sometimes it was desktop support for a graphic designer working out of their house. And sometimes it was going into a big enterprise with a large in-house agency, you know, and we had a lot of clients like that. And so when we started the company, it's not like we started from 
absolute zero. It built truly cottage industry style to the point when Jeff and I started the company, we wanted to commit to ourselves, let's actually make a run at growing a company not just running a small business where we're sole operators independently and sort of helping each other out, but can we hire people, grow it, build a brand, and maybe even make something that is worth something someday to sell. It transitions at that point from a way to make money each year to a way to build an investment in a business over time. Not quite like serial entrepreneurship, but like becoming like a, a retirement business where you could potentially build it to sell it and retire from it, right? It's a different mindset, a different strategy. Yeah. And so we were ready for that at that point, having been in business for ourselves for many years prior to Tamman. So in those early days, just from a, the standpoint of running a business, like what's something that really surprised you, especially going from being a solo operator and you grew fairly quickly, you came in with an employee. So, I mean, what was that like then yeah. in terms of the difference? I mean- Besides the scary factor where you just wanted to barf every day wondering how you're going to make it? <laughs> no, tell me about the scary factor. <laughs> no, no. Look, it's just, I think this will make sense to anybody who has worked for themselves and had to hustle for each dollar each week, right? A lot of people don't understand this if they've not worked for themselves, right? Like there's a freedom where you get to direct how you spend your day, but there is the constant pressure of, I have to be finding more revenue. I have to find new clients. I have to deliver. You never know if you're going to have work tomorrow. And so you take whatever jobs you can have today. And then sometimes you go like I did prior to Tamman, three years of 80 hour weeks, because I didn't know if the following week was going to have any money in it. It's hard to change the groove. And so out of a 28 year long career, I've only spent cumulatively five years out of a 28-year-long career was working for somebody else. Oh, wow. And that wasn't altogether all to, all to front either. That kind of was interspersed. So I really always had sort of from the very beginning an entrepreneurial bent on how I approached work. And I think that has served me well, but it does create some other trappings like never wanting to turn down a job. You know, that's a thing I had to learn along the way, you know, a little later in Tamman's history, but like early on wondering, gosh, if we're going to start this company and we're going to start off with benefits and our first employee on day one, somebody that I hired who I met in Japan when I lived there, it adds to the pressure. It's not just I have to pay my own bills and manage my own money. Now I have to manage the money to ensure that somebody else has consistent income. One of the things that my father always used to impress upon me is like the owner of the business eats last. They take the money last. And so your employees have to get paid first. And so that created a pressure I didn't really have to deal with prior to starting Tamman with Jeff. Yeah. And so that became a little nerve wracking. I was only joking about that fake fact. I mean, about you sleeping on the couch, you know, six and a half years. But as with all of those, there was a kernel of truth of where I was. Could have been a year. <laughs> you were putting in some really hard hours for a long time for, I'm sure, that reason and, and wanting to deliver for your clients and everything else. And I've heard you talk about and use this analogy before that I think is really apropos of a burner mentality, right? You only have oh, yeah. so much gas to light the burners. Can you describe what that means? Sure. Yeah. For, I mean, many people will know it, but if people don't know it, you know, there's idea that you have a stove, it's got four burners. There's only a fixed maximum amount of gas you can feed to these four gas burners, right? Uh, coming in through one pipe. So if you turn them all on halfway, you're going to get what you expect heat-wise out of each of those burners. But if you turn one all the way up, you have to turn something else down, right? You just don't have enough gas to turn them all on at 100%. Each burner represents one aspect of life. You've got health, family, friends, and work. So if you turn work to 100%, you're going to have literally nothing left for the others. I went through many years, both before and during Tamman, where I turned up the work burner to 90 or 95%. Before I was married, I was able to sacrifice friends and family, and then I left 5% for health, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And then once I got married, I'm like, well, I got to turn family at least to 10%. So I guess health is going to zero and then work stays at 90. <laughs> you know? And that was sustainable when I was in my 30s. And when I hit my 40s, it was no longer sustainable. I had to start rebalancing. Part of the strategy to rebalance was to grow Tamman bigger, ironically, right? Because there's an inflection point in any size organization, right? And there's a few of them. There's not just one, right? But there's a point at which you go from being the person who's doing everything to the person who's maybe in charge of everything to the person who's just in charge of other people who are in charge of things. <laughs> you know, and the further away you get from the doing all the things, the more you have control over how much you put into that work burner because you can distribute that load. And all you need to do is be clever and or skilled at managing your time and managing delegation, right? 
Yeah. Do you find in your travels, and I know you've been a member of a lot of different peer groups before and other things. I mean, do you find that most business owners in your circles are able to effectively make that transition from being the technician, from being the person doing that great thing, whatever that is for them, to managing people who are managing people to do that great thing? I don't know. I think it's a mixed bag, really. I think without speaking for others, for Even me, though that's exactly what I asked you to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to start by just speaking for myself. Sure. Right. For me, I was very eager to learn those skills. Mm. They didn't come naturally. I had no muscle memory for any of them. And over a 14-year period of running Tamman from Jeff and me and our first employee to 50 plus people, you know, I gave myself an MBA. <laughs> you know, like it, sure. it just happened. Like I had to learn about all the things you'd think you'd have to learn about, right? Like finance and legal and writing contracts and hiring and firing and performance management and like all things I never had to do when I worked for myself as a solopreneur. But then I also had to learn other things that people don't often think about, which is I had to learn how to manage my time very differently. Each stage of Tamman as it grew, put greater and greater demands on the techniques I used to do time management. And then I had to figure out what are my alternatives, because this isn't sustainable or growable, try new techniques. And that's not just hiring another person. That's changing the way that I thought about my own time and my own effort. How do I value my own time? I had to learn how to value my time, <laughs> just yeah. even that alone. And I think of all the people I've met now speaking for others, I don't think it's a matter of people do it or don't do it. Like, like people are capable or not capable of it. Mm -hmm. Do you want to learn that and invest in it? And it doesn't happen overnight and it can take a lot of failures. You know, we, we've had a previous podcast, Marty, or if they weren't public, they were couch conversations late at night, you and me, you know, sure. talking about failure and how many failures do you have to make before you finally learn the thing or find the path, you know, through, it doesn't always have to be like, I'm not learning this. It's more like I tried seven things and none of them worked for me or this business or the situation, but maybe the eighth one will, and it's persistence. It comes down to grit, right? Grit is required to grow yourself in a situation or it was for me. So you were someone who was so, your identity was Tamman. I mean, quite literally, we have always said you are the man in Tamman, right? I mean- Yes, figuratively uh, and literally. Figuratively <laughs> and literally, right? And so can you talk to us and the listeners by extension a little bit about how scary and just sort of what your thinking was around changing where you were leveling those burners and stepping away from this company that you built and you weren't stepping away to sell it because you're retiring. You weren't stepping away because something bad happened. You weren't stepping away because the SEC forced no, you or I some mean, other look, thing. Like, well, look, it's, it's unfortunately there, there isn't like a neat answer to that question. It's that I was ready for a next chapter. I had grown a lot in my role at Tamman. My whole intention for like the last, I would say, five or six years of the company was, can I make this run without me? Not because I was trying to get out. I really wasn't. I just wanted to take the pressure off so I could get to balancing the burners. <laughs> you know, that yeah. was the next thing that I decided I wanted to learn how to do. I learned how to do all these things in running a business, being successful in consulting for clients, creating value for customers or for Tamman. I also really love developing people and mentoring and coaching. And those things I got to do all of that in Tamman. I'm not saying I got perfect at any one of them, but I definitely grew. And I saw the fruit of that investment pay off over time where I could see it working, but I also knew that I still wasn't turning down the work burner. All those things that I was growing in were all in the work burner. And I wasn't really learning how to be a better dad. I wasn't really learning how to be a better husband. I wasn't really connecting with my friends any better. I had lost friendships, not because of problems or dramas, but because of atrophy. <laughs> in, in fairness, I feel like we grew closer because I was now <laughs> sure. working with you and on that I burner, mean, but yeah. Well, that only happened until I put you in the work bucket. So I felt like as... Some family members, some of my immediate family was now struggling with their own health issues, and they were trying to learn how to navigate those things. I wasn't having my own health issues necessarily. I could easily dismiss my own health care concerns. But as my wife and my children are now experiencing things, nothing life-threatening, but developing things, and they didn't quite know how to navigate them. And realizing that I've learned all these tools on how to manage stuff, and I could actually apply some of that effort and that learning to managing my family. 
And I wanted to do that. That became a goal. And so I spent years building up to that opportunity to focus on them. And then I felt like I hit a point, you know, in 2021 where I'm like, actually, I think Tamman is running great. Like we've got great people in place. Operationally, it was running well. I could have stayed and probably just let it continue to play out. And I could have turned down the work burner a little bit and slowly pulled myself away. But I also know myself and I know that I love working and it's not working that I love. I love solving problems. I love continuous learning. I love like hunting and and like scoring the hunt. You know, that's both from a sales perspective, but also from a solutions perspective, right? I'd actually say you were always far more driven in the times that I've worked with you from the solutions end. And when I came to Tamin, you know, part of it was to take some of that load off among other people as well. And all I saw was you looking at it going, well, I, I now have some time. I'm going to fill it with the next solution that I can find for someone. And you really never were able to lower that burner because you were driven. You enjoyed aspects of it. So that's where yeah. I, I want to dig in a little deeper of like, did you come to that point where you just said, if I'm going to be the dad I want to be, if I'm going to be the husband I want to be, then I have to step away? Yeah, totally. I think that was really what pushed me over the edge. Again, not like a cliff, but like it pushed me over that line, right? Because it wasn't a free fall after that. Oh, it felt a little free falling at first. <laughs> but the idea that like, if I'm going to make a real change, sometimes this is this goes back to Aristotelian philosophy, right? That like- Go deep, brother. Go deep. <laughs> that like, sometimes if your pendulum is off by a little bit, you can push it a little bit back. But when your pendulum's way off to one side, the only way to bring it to center is to go to the other extreme for a bit and let it settle in the middle. And I felt like I just had been incrementally trying to nudge it back to center, but I was so far off to the left that I just couldn't push it back to middle. And so I had to kind of take this more extreme approach and say, maybe I need to step away, like really step away and move it over. And, you know, I mean, maybe you could chalk that up to a failing of not figuring out how to balance those things, right? But that's what I did. And I settled in the middle and I feel like I'm there. <laughs> so let's talk about those early days of, okay, you you made this hard decision. You said it didn't feel like falling off a cliff, but then sometimes kind of did. Like how long did that feeling of, oh God, oh God, I don't know what's happening. How long did that last for you after? Uh, you, that's you a good know, question. I don't know if I have an exact date, but my gut tells me it was like six months. <laughs> Wow. That long? Really? Yeah. It wasn't like six months. And then all of a sudden I woke up one day, I'm like, I feel fine. But it was that feeling didn't really subside in a way where I wasn't noticing it anymore for a, like, a, like a half a year. I'll just say. Were there strategies that you were employing though? Like, did you take the same approach of sort of like failing and trying different things? Or did you have a bit of a plan to say, I'm going to create some discipline. You know, I have to find this new path that doesn't include Finding solutions yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. I, there were two things that I did. First, I established a set of parameters for work. Like there's things that I'm not going to get involved in unless somebody raises their hand. And then I'm going to commit to myself that I will only do X amount for it. Like I'm happy to have meetings and conversations, but specifically, I don't want to step in to solve a thing personally. I need to see my role as coach or consultant and not like a doer, right? And that was always a problem at Tamman anyway, because like, as much as I tried to delegate things to managers, I also would just jump in and start doing things. And like that sometimes messes up the flow, right? It doesn't allow people to grow in their own role and in their own like professionalism or careers, you know, or skills. Because I would sometimes come in and steal the opportunity. And that wasn't fair. I look back, I feel bad about all those times I did, <laughs> you know, because it wasn't intentional. I just loved making rain, you know, like having fun and solving problems and sometimes not realizing that me having fun and or creating a solution could inadvertently impact somebody else's opportunity. And mm -hmm. it was shown to me in the year before I sold Tamman that I was doing that. Not all the time. It might have even been you that showed me that, Marty. <laughs> but somebody helped me realize that. I wish I could remember who it was. And I'll take the credit. That's fine. But it made me reevaluate a lot of my interactions mm -hmm. and kind of pause a little more, but it still wasn't enough. Like I still needed to step out and then be a consultant back to the thing rather than be in the center of the thing. Redefine your role for yourself. Because yeah. in fairness, you didn't stop working at Tamman in your role as CEO. 
show and do nothing. I mean, you did. No, I was almost full time. I mean, like for the first four, three, four months, I was still full time at Tamman. Like, I, yeah, it didn't, well, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. Like, it's I was still, but I had to change my role. Mm. So that was the, sort of the first thing I did, like create parameters around a new role for myself and decide how the interaction was going to work, right? And by totally redefining the role and taking a new job within Tamman is what I think started the process. But there's another key thing that I did, which. You know, I won't take full credit for it. I kind of stole it from Michael Michaelowitz's book, Profit First, which I'm not subscribing to the Profit First method entirely. But the point there is that he says, like, in a business, you take the profit. You say, I need to get a 10% profit out of this business. You remove that from the revenues first, and then the company has to operate on whatever's left, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know if I totally agree with him, but I took the strategy, like the concept, and I said, if the goal here is to turn up the family burner then I'm going to decide what I'm carving out of my time for the family first. Work has to fit in with whatever's left. And if health becomes a thing, I don't steal that from the family time. I steal it from the work time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so suddenly now I have a burner that I put a, a minimum limiter on for family. It can't go below 30%, right? Yeah. So it might, it could go above it, but it can't go below that amount, which meant that work can never go above 70. And if I have a commitment to my own health, that health is also going to get a certain amount. So then work kind of can't go above a certain thing. It was really different. I don't think I could have done that in my old role as CEO at Tamman, but I could do it as a consultant to Tamman. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and you also jumped into a new opportunity, one in the startup world. And I'd love to kind of pivot a little bit to that because the way that you had built Tamman, you'd certainly been around startups, you had helped startups, you had consulted with startups, but now you were in a very different space with a limited role, as you just described, in a startup world. Can you talk a little bit about some of your learnings and some of the big headline takeaways that you had from you know where you've been in this startup world? Yeah. Well, first of all, I didn't really start the startup till almost six months after the paperwork was completed for my exit from Tamman. So maybe that's why it also started to feel different around six months. <laughs> I don't know. But it was about six months later. And, you know, I was an early investor in a tech startup called Kith and Kin. Still there, by the way. We're still here doing our thing. <laughs> As of the recording of this podcast, we exist. Which I think is pretty good, by the way. It's like three years in, this, this tech startup in the consumer healthcare space still exists. So we're like already have lasted longer and done more with less money than 90% of the other entrants into our market. So I feel great about that. But needless to say, early on, before I sold time, and I was an early investor in the company, and I kind of wanted to know how my investment was going. So I, I invited the CEO out to dinner. We went out, caught up on what was happening, and they had just lost their chief technology officer. And I was like, well, I'm not sure I'm a CTO, but I can do some CTO-like things. But I also have a lot of like knowledge on how to build stuff and products and run a company. <laughs> like, do you need my help? And she's like, yeah, actually, that would be great. So I joined, and then suddenly we started really solving problems, and I got to jump back into it again, right? What was limited, but in, with, with those well, parameters still very much in place, right? Correct. And that, that's what I was going to say is that starting with Tamman, where there's 14 years of muscle memory on how to operate and all the things that I did, it, was it would have been really hard. It would have been impossible. I just proved it. it was impossible for me to correct my behavior. But now six months of practice at a new model where I have limits on how much work can take out of the gas on the stove. And now I'm going to go in in a part-time capacity in a tech startup. It was easy to keep the limits in place and still continue to work with Tamman, by the way. Like I could kind of do all of it, but I knew that before a certain hour of the morning, I wasn't going to be working and I had to be done at a certain time. And I had certain activities with the kids, sports and healthcare appointments and things like that and school things that all became the thing that like, then work has to fit around these other things because they're all top billing. It was easier to slowly dial work back into a new model, right? This is the pendulum swing, right? I swung the pendulum to the other side, to the far right for six months. And then when I was ready for that next professional endeavor, it's settled into the middle. And I was actually able to create a balance. <laughs> it's really, really great. I saw that. I saw that balance that was created. And there was a lot of times where we would meet and afterwards someone would say, oh, how's Mike doing? I said, he's so happy. He's so relaxed. He looks better than I've seen him in so long. And then you shaved. We want the beard back. I shaved the beard. after the, uh, Many years I had a beard. Yeah. Although Marty, I will say, I want to put a caveat to all of this, right? Because... I do want to just acknowledge that I became incredibly lucky to be able to afford to do this. Not everyone can afford to walk away from a job and then rebalance their life around a part-time work schedule. 
I would like to believe that that was a product of a lot of hard work and good decisions and a heck of a lot of luck <laughs> over 14 years. Yeah. You know, I do really, in full earnestness, believe that the luck played the biggest part. And I just had to sort of manage the luck the best I could into whatever stuff I could turn it into, you know, because, you know, people have asked me for advice in the past on like, how do I get what you have, Mike? And I'm like, honestly, it's a lot of luck. It's like, you know, 20% is like really intelligent management, got to make good choices. And I do believe also just like, you know, you could call it karma. Although my aunt likes to say you make your own luck, right? I like to believe that I made my own luck, but I didn't start with no luck. <laughs> You know, and so it's hard for me to say how you get to that work-life balance if you don't have a substantial amount of money. It's not life-changing money, but it's like enough. I could focus on myself and my family and not have to worry about finding a job tomorrow. So, did you uh, feel guilty about that? Yeah, like a lot. I, by the way, I'm. I'm I, that was. This is not a pre-prepared question of any kind, but I'm just looking at you as we speak and crossing my arms, and I'm like sitting yeah, back in my like, chair. I, so <laughs> let's explore that, Mr. Mangos. Like. Why do you feel guilty about that? I would say that you shouldn't. And so let me put my cards on the table. Yeah, sure. There's always some interesting benefits and privilege that you may or may not be born with. I mean, both your parents being in the advertising agency world and, and, and giving you that foundation and understanding entrepreneurship and giving you the confidence and the first steps and all that. But you took advantage of all of those things. There's a lot of folks that would have squandered quite a bit of it. And I can say that it's not like you were handed anything. You know, you worked your way through Drexel. You earned your 4.0 at Drexel the hard way and, and through a lot of- And had to pay all the bills. I didn't have anybody funding my college right. education. So Yeah, but that's not the same. I mean, I still had very, very supportive family. I had a great set of supportive friends. My parents worked hard to make sure that I got to go to like a top 10 school in the state, you know, a public school in the state. And so they worked hard to make sure that I got all those foundational elements. But I think you're asking why I feel guilty. If I can unpack that for a second. I, I don't know if I'd say guilt, but maybe it's like, I feel a little shameful because I feel like a part of it I earned, but I know that I didn't earn it alone. It happens always on the backs of others. We hired a lot of people. I'd like to think I made decent hiring choices over the years, decent firing choices over the years, <laughs> you know, and that decision needed to be made too, you know, but ultimately like I brought people into the company to help me create that value. I like to think that I paid people fairly or sometimes more than fairly, tried to make an amazing set of benefits because I believed that people didn't need to be worrying about their healthcare or, you know, other things. So there was a, a set of principles I ran the company on, but that comes down to partly why I think I feel sheepish sometimes mm. about this, right? Is that I'm like a closeted socialist. Like I'm not really a socialist, like, like, but that, you know, within me is like, a nonprofit social worker who just masquerades around as a capitalist. <laughs> I have always said that about you. <laughs> I know. Without a doubt. And so I feel like I want to help create these kinds of opportunities for anybody who wants them, but it's hard. We live in a fundamentally unfair society and there are people who can work through it and there are people who struggle to work through it. And there are people who don't care and don't try. Like, I'm not saying everybody is going to sure. get the same things, but I think we still, even for people who want it and work for it, that they often can't succeed at what I got because of those general sort of inequities. And that's might be why I feel bad about it. And so I think that's a perfect segue into the next set of questions I want to talk to you about. And that is, you know, you were the person who set the vision. And made the decision that Tamman would dedicate itself to digital accessibility. And so we talk about inequity. Let's talk about digital accessibility. You built Tamman up from really not having a basis in that. I mean, because frankly, Tamman was started as an IT firm having, you know, and it went through a lot of iterations, which people can look up and find out more about that if they want. But I'm curious, now that, you know, you stepped away from Tamman and saw the world, you know, from the other side of the fence, like when we're in digital accessibility world and we're talking about it all the time and we're thinking about it constantly and talking to clients and helping them problem solve around ways in which they can be more accessible. What changed, if anything, in your view of the accessibility landscape? Pick your place, right? From the startup mentality, from just not being steeped in it day in and day out. I mean, I'd really want to explore some of the things that you noticed and saw stepping away from accessibility at Tamman. Yeah. So I don't intersect with it as often as I think I should, not because of me, but because 
there's still a fundamental lack of commitment or awareness or appreciation, <laughs> you know, all of the above, all of the above. Yeah. Like just like for all the factors that have made digital accessibility, something that wasn't focused on for the first 33 years of the ADA, right? Like those things still exist. And I guess when I was at Tamman, we knew that there was a big gap, but because we were well steeped in the people working on and in digital accessibility, I guess I maybe got to the belief that there were more people working on it than maybe actually are. <laughs> mm -hmm. And having stepped out and then worked in a startup as well as with other companies doing some small limited consulting engagements here and there, realizing that I think, so there's two things, there is a greater percentage of awareness than before we started on this journey ourselves at Tamman, right? I think there's more general awareness that digital accessibility exists it's a phrase or a label, right? So that's good, but like not clearly sufficient. But then I'm also surprised by an even greater dearth of commitment or action in organizations mm -hmm. toward digital accessibility. I think at Tamman, we ended up just getting clients or meeting people that knew they had to do something and were eager to start to learn or needed to start working on it. But rather like, I'm just seeing so many companies that we wouldn't have gotten introduced to at Tamman because they're not working on it and realizing, oh, they're all not working on this. Like, this is still a big problem. Just like my life outside of Tamman, like, I'll still, you know, I'm in Tamman. I'm like, oh, this is really changing. It's really moving. And then I'll, like, go on someone else's website and find things labeled poorly or, like, I'll email customer service and ask to help fix the problem and say, oh, and the reason this doesn't work is blah, blah, blah. And I know they, like, completely ignored the whole second part and just put out the fire. So it's definitely... Yeah. not as prevalent as we would like to think. Yeah, right. You said it perfectly. And it's not just websites, Kristen. It's like, it's that, but it's also literally everything else. Yes, it is everything else. <laughs> and I think websites being sort of the breakwater for where this could be worked on within companies, you get past the public facing website and you realize, oh, that's all they did. There's like nothing in the company. They're not supporting employees. And often not because they don't care Oftentimes they don't even know what they're supposed to do or that they don't even know who should be picking up that mantle in the company, particularly if it's like a company bigger than a few hundred people. You know, there isn't really like anyone who's really sure whose responsibility it is. So I'm curious, specifically in the startup space, because you and I haven't really talked about this. You had the opportunity to engage with external investors. And I know you were up in New York and, and places like that. Did accessibility ever even cross the mind of any of the many, many investors you've talked to within the startup community? Is that so, something that you found people even had awareness around specifically from that lens or not really? Yeah, I think that's where I was saying, like, when I would introduce myself to folks, and of course, the thing they're most interested in is not that I happen to also have expertise in digital accessibility, but they want to know about my tech startup chops. Can I program? Can I run a team? Do I know finance? How did I run my small business? You know, but I would always punctuate whatever I said about my background with, and I'm also an expert in digital accessibility and I consult on it. And that's where I was surprised by the number of people who were like, oh, cool. Yeah. And they would know something about it. That's great. So that's where like, that's cool. Cause that didn't used to happen, but then if the conversation went even past that at all, like even one sentence past that, they're not doing anything about it. They don't really have a plan. They know what it is. Cool. And nobody's actually deciding we should do something about this, right? I'm not trying to be critical of any of these folks I've met. I just think that that's still where we are. Yeah. As a corporate community, like we're still at that point. So let me then ask you about your next steps, right? I mean, with all of the different opportunities that you may have and the different hats you may wear, you will not be the head of a digital accessibility consultancy or, or anything similar, but you will be building, whether it's teams or products or whatever. Do you think in that role, you'll be able to convince or continue to have a commitment to accessibility in a way that I know you want to, but do you think you're going to be able to do that with some of these next steps, yeah, or whatever look, they may be? That's a great question. I think the answer is I will be able to do it in part, but I will not be able to do it in full. That is fair, right? Sad. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, I mean, <laughs> what, what I can say is, so our current code base with Kith and Ken. Not that I want to put us in the hot seat, right? <laughs> but I know we're not digitally accessible in the product. I did not design and build our current production version. 
we are about to begin a complete rebuild because I want to get to scalability and reachability. I want to be able to- You build. had other priorities that were more important for where you were. Well, it's not, it's, it's not that I did. It's just that the company didn't know how to do that stuff with the original members. Right? And the investment that was coming in wanted certain things. Oh yeah, there, there would never they, have been They enough. prioritized certain things as well. Yeah, but first of all, even if everybody three years ago at Kith and Kin knew exactly what digital accessibility was and how to achieve it, I don't think they would have had the money mm. to do it. Accessibility doesn't always have to cost more, but it does cost something more. It's not zero, right? And so when you're making choices between like, do we do even basic analytics on our users or do we do digital accessibility? You're like, well, we can't survive as a company if we don't have analytics to tell a story to an investor. We don't want to leave users behind, but how do we make that choice? Because if we choose digital accessibility, you're literally saying we're not going to get to stage two. <laughs> You know, and so I'm not proud of that fact, but it's kind of like, how do you do that? So as I've been working on, we, we've been designing, writing requirements and designing for our version two for Kith and Ken for the better part of this year so far, you know, since January. And in all of that, I've been working with our head of UX to make sure that everything is digitally accessible on the design layer. So shifting left. I've also been working with our tech partner to make sure that we get people who at least either no accessibility on the technical side or can be coached into doing it. And so it's in the plan to build it into our version two, but there was no going back. And I mean, otherwise, I mean, there'd be so much rewrite required for version one. It's really what we're doing in version two. That's exactly what I'm doing, right? I'm not only rewriting for accessibility, but it is one of the core tenets of what we're going to do. And that comes from a couple of reasons, right? Like one, I think it's the right thing to do. But beyond that, I know that when we try to sell to corporate partners, let's say we want a big insurance firm in Philadelphia to license this as a per employee per month benefit, or maybe they even want to offer it to their members who have insurance through them, right? Like if we want to get them as a partner, they are going to have some phrase or clause in their purchasing agreement that says we have to be a digitally accessible platform, right? We have to meet certain standards like the WCAG 2.1 AA, right? And so, because I know that's coming, I'm preparing for it. I wish other companies would see that that's a requirement and see it coming, you know, but it's not universal yet that companies are only buying or licensing products or benefits that are accessible. That's still not universal, but I know that there'll be key partners that we're going to want to penetrate or get in with that this will become a requirement for them if it's not now in the next couple of years. Because I think that's how this is going to get in first. That's how digital accessibility is going to spread because companies are saying, we don't want the liability. We're now going to require not just to say accessibility is the responsibility of the vendor, but to actually say, we can't license it until you can demonstrate that you've met this requirement, right? right. And I think that's what's going to drive things. I'm not seeing it as much as I thought I would. But I think as a startup, people aren't asking that question yet. They're asking, are we HIPAA compliant? We just got to HIPAA compliance in the last month or two. What they don't tell you is like, they'll give you the first no. You don't know how many no's are behind the first no. <laughs> the next no sure. is going to be something else. The third or fourth no down the line is going to be, you're not digitally accessible. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. Know, So I'm preparing for it. So I have to ask the question that I'm pretty sure every podcast on every subject is asking in some form or another. How will AI affect all of this? Mike, talk to us about artificial intelligence or machine learning. What role does it play in your future endeavors, again, solving, building, whatever they may be? Yeah, I mean, gosh, uh, what part is AI not going to play in that? I mean, there's been a complete ground shift, right? ChatGPT4 sort of changed everything. It doesn't do everything. It's not universal, but it, it sort of opened up the possibility or it unlocked this like potential for AI or people's impression of the potential of AI. Maybe that's the thing it shifted. It shifted people's opinions of what AI could really do. Because everything up to ChatGPT4 was like horsing around. <laughs> it's not that it was completely ineffective, but this idea of like general machine intelligence felt like it might actually be a fantasy. And we had lots of specific machine intelligence that was amazing. We got really good at that over the last 20, 30 years, maybe longer building point solutions that understood one narrow set of criteria really well and could sort of make decisions like a person would in this very, very narrow domain. But the idea of like general AI intelligence felt like it probably exists, but we don't know how far out it is. Kind of like cold fusion, right? Cold fusion has been 30 years away for 70 years, <laughs> yeah. you know, yeah. right? And so people just go like, well, it's probably still 30 years out or whatever. And then ChatGPT4 comes out and we're like, maybe we need to rethink what we consider intelligence is. 
because now it's communicating and operating on a level that it clearly has some understanding of what the general world is about and physical space and all kinds of things. It knows this, but it doesn't really know it. Like we know it. It knows it based on a pattern of words, like what words normally come after other words in order to figure that out more or less. And researchers are still trying to figure out how it did it, but somehow it figured out that it knows that like you can't balance a bottle on top of a pin. It knows the pin has to go on top of the bottle. How does it know that? It doesn't exist as like knowledge on the internet, but it knows that that's true. And is it really that different than this conversation right now? (laughs) I'm sure chat GPT-4 could be having an almost equally compelling conversation with you. <laughs> <laughs> so I think where this is going to change things, like, let me take it from a few angles. Like with Kith and Kin, we've had trouble teaching users how to manage and or just even document effectively their health journeys. Mm. People don't know what to do. And we've tried a bunch of different things in our version one app to guide people, and it hasn't been sufficient. So our version two, one of the main things we designed was turn our model upside down and say, don't try to organize it. We're going to give you options to organize it if that's what you want, but organization it becomes optional rather than required. And so just get it in, turn it into a health wallet. It could be a messy wallet. And then we're going to give you great search tools to be able to surface the things that you need, right? It's kind of more along the lines of the Google Gmail model where you just get a bunch of emails, don't delete them, don't archive them, don't file them, just search for whatever you need, whenever you need it, right? I didn't love starting there. That's not what our early user research told us. What we also found out is that the broad populace doesn't know how to organize it. And that's what we found when we got people into the app. And so we have to take a different approach. Where I think AI fits in is that instead of guiding people on how to manage their health better, meaning we create guidance, I think we create machine learning models where we teach it what good healthcare looks like or good healthcare organization looks like and let people interact with the AI in more of like a bespoke consultative or coaching mechanism to get them into the point where they feel confident that they can get their arms around their healthcare. Because we have a fundamentally broken healthcare system in America, right? Gosh, we're, we you know, talk about meandering, sorry. But like- Oh yeah, no, uh, this is a great <laughs> meandering. <laughs> but like the weird part about the American healthcare system is that we expect the patient to be the center of the journey. There's nobody taking care of your health or helping you take care of your health. Now there are very limited- pilots or circumstances where you might have a care navigator assisting you, but that's not the norm. We expect the patient to be the one to take the thing from one doctor to another. And even though those doctors technically can share information electronically, they often don't. And even when they do, doctor number two doesn't want to see anything that doctor number one has. They want to order the tests over again. They're not really interested in collaborating on your health. You as the patient are the only one at the center of your own health journeys right? And that's a problem. Like in the UK, I was just talking to a guy this morning running a tech startup in, in the United Kingdom. It's amazing. Love to get into it sometime, not this podcast. But you know, he said in there in the UK, they have one payer and one provider. And so when you go, the system is set up to try to help you. Now it has faults. It's got problems. You sometimes have to wait long times to get your care, but you don't have to also be a healthcare manager or a care navigator for yourself. Like it guides you through it and everybody's there to work on your health. Whereas in America, in a for-profit model, which is fundamentally disjointed, where there is not single payer, not single provider, you know, you're the only connective tissue between all these things. And we have not empowered people with like teaching them how to do it, but there aren't enough care navigators to go around. So could AI be a thing that solves the healthcare gap in the United States, or at least starts to chip away at the problem? by helping coach people, being their care navigator, right? I'm not sure that like AI is quite there today, but I think that it will be there tomorrow. Sometime in the very near future, this is going to be a way that this happens. Interestingly, where it intersects with digital accessibility is that you have people that might need even greater accessibility needs or even greater compatibility with assistive technologies because we're trying to get healthcare for folks and you know, you're likely to be consuming more healthcare or need more support in this model if you're starting off with either disabilities or things that you're struggling with. They could be cognitive or whatever, right? But like, you know, we know that the population that would benefit the most from care navigation are the people that are also well served by digital accessibility. Mm, that's really, really interesting, that intersection. So just listening to you talk, it makes me think that I want my own personal Baymax from Big Hero 6. Do you see robots in our future 
for all of us to embrace and, you know, be cared for by? Well, before I give you my doom and gloom scenario of robots, I noticed that Kristen came off of mute and I, I, if she wants to contribute or ask a question. <laughs> I was thinking in a similar vein, like you in that early episode of Article 19, where Amanda asked what keeps you up at night and you said the one word answer was robots, you know, robots. And, you know, I feel like you were an oracle then, as you kind of are. And now that you've taken a backseat, all that's happened. So that was a similar question that I had. And what is something about the world that keeps you up at night? How Michael. about you, Mike? Robots. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> I mean, I'm being a little bit cheeky about it, but artificial intelligence taking over human activities, the idea that there won't be enough jobs to go around because we're going to program computers, software, and robots to do all of it, and that we're going to have to find a new way to think about economy and taking care of people in the world and giving them meaningful things to contribute to, not just living sort of these radically indulgent lifestyles, you know? or if not, then you're just doomed to poverty and homelessness. Robots, full stop. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. The question um, that Kristen poses... Oracle, tell us what is our future and should we be afraid? Yeah, look. Should we um, still be up at night for the same reasons that you thought before or different reasons? You should still be kept up at night by robots <laughs> in, in, <laughs> yes, your, in, in your nightmares. That said, you know, I think what I've come to, and I'm not, I don't remember my full answer from the old podcast, but I think we have an opportunity kind of like parents, right? Birthing children and raising them before they're ready to go out into the world and make their own messes, right? We have an opportunity to give values to this child, to this new intelligence. We can't necessarily say we can control it forever, but if you start off by sticking the kid in front of a device all day and you don't really teach it any values and you expect it to just learn it by watching the worst behaviors of humans, you're just going to be asking for robot domination. Like I don't I don't think there's any way around it. But if we put clear guardrails in place and we create goals for AI that are in line with human goals, if we give it initiatives to pursue, right? And this is universally. I don't mean like the one AI, because I don't think there's going to be a singularity. I think what we're going to have is lots of competing AIs, but you can't raise an entire society of artificial intelligences to like all have competing goals all the time. I don't think humanity has demonstrated its benevolence. We have tons of inequities and people get smushed down to the bottom all the time and ruined. <laughs> You know, and some people get lifted up and we just accept that as a fundamental truth of nature. Well, if you're going to create a bunch of artificial intelligences and you allow them to compete like humans, if we don't create a different, more utopian model, they will be competing with each other and humans will get sort of crushed under the weight of this artificial competition. I think that's the biggest thing we have to worry about. And so if we stay up at night worrying about that, maybe we'll actually solve it. <laughs> like, you know, ignoring it doesn't make it better. Well, Mr. Karl Marx, I appreciate you spending time with us, <laughs> but before I let you go, I'm just teasing <laughs> your utopian model of not getting crushed by the larger entities. I want to end with giving you a chance to talk a little bit about advice you give based on experiences gained to anyone who's going through, you know, big transitions, focusing on the burner of health and family, of taking leaps into scary places. I mean, there's a lot of things that we've covered today. Take your pick, but I'd love for you to give just sort of a little bit of a, a chance to summarize to, you know, employees of Tamman who might be listening to this, employees of companies, other leaders, other executives who are thinking, you know, I'm feeling like I need to change the way that my burners are set right now. What's some advice you would give to those folks? There's so many things I could say. You'd get a different answer from me each hour of the day and each day of the week if you ask that question over and over, <laughs> okay? <laughs> because it's really hard. But what I would say is I watched something, I watched, a, I guess it was a commencement speech or a graduation speech that Jim Carrey gave. I don't know when. It was a great philosopher. Ago. We went from Aristotle <laughs> to Jim Carrey, the decline of the American civilization. Go ahead. It sounds so petty and bizarre, but at the same time, I really liked what he said. And I've been ruminating on this, mm. right? You know, he's like, without going to the whole thing, I would encourage people to go find it and listen to it on YouTube. But one of the things he gets into is fear will always be a component of your life right? You shouldn't let fear drive all of your decisions. It has to be considered, but don't pursue fear. Don't let fear drive you. Let love be the thing that you pursue. Mm -hmm. Let love be the thing that drives you, right? And so 
you know, when I stepped away from Tamman and focused on family, I was trying to let love be the thing that drove me, not fear of failing or fear of too little finance. I tried not to let fear drive me at Tamman either. It was always there. It's persistent. It's scary. It's demanding of attention, right? But that if we can find a way to contain that fear and deal with it appropriately, then love could possibly be the thing that we use as our guiding light. It's the thing that drives us. That's what I would encourage people to do. I was able to do it because I have sort of a ridiculously large amount of self-confidence <laughs> and I never quite let fear <laughs> take root, you know, but that doesn't mean I don't have fears, right? I'm just insanely self-confident. And so I feel like, I don't know, whatever it is, I'll figure it out and just go for it, right? I don't expect everybody to have that. But if fear is holding a person back, I would encourage them to find a way to manage it, to find their self-confidence, to find where they see their own self-worth, and then put love in front of everything else. Michael, we've been talking for over an hour now. So this may end up being two podcasts. I just so appreciate your willingness to share, your wisdom, everything else. It's so valuable. This will not be the last time you're on Article 19. After all, you started Article 19. So thank you for being the original host and co-host. I encourage folks to go back and listen to Article 19 in our catalog and, and everywhere else. And to follow Mike. You can follow Mike on LinkedIn you know, see what he might be up to. Not that you're a social media guy, because you're really not. And let's I, I, I actually but don't use social media. <laughs> could probably connect with you there if they wanted to kind of keep tabs and see what you might be up to in your future endeavors. Of I exist on LinkedIn. I just don't tweet or post on Facebook and I don't post on LinkedIn, <laughs> but I, don't I think... exist there. Michael, thank you so much. And we look forward to bringing you on again and talking about your next amazing endeavor. Maybe it's with Tamman, maybe it's beyond Tamman, and maybe it's just a time to check in because we miss you and haven't seen you for a while. So thank you, Marty. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate you guys. And it was fun. Yay. Well, with that, thank you to all the listeners of Article 19, and we will see you. Thank you so much, Mike, for joining us and for sharing about your life and the necessity to pause and what those pauses really mean and how they can rejuvenate you and move you to try other things and expand into other roles, as well as taking that time for family and health and friendship. It is a struggle that everyone has to think about and comes to terms with, and it's great to talk about it here on the pod. And thanks, Marty, for the incisive questions and digging in and doing that wonderful journalistic hosting that you always do. And thanks to Marcus for bringing us all together and connecting us and making us our best on and off the mic. If you like what you heard today and want to explore more about digital accessibility, technology, our company culture, or anything else, schedule a time to meet with us. You can find the whole Tamman team at tamaninc.com. That's T-A-M-M-A-N-I-N-C.com. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter too, so you never miss an event or an insight from us. Be sure to rate our podcast five stars on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to us. It really helps our podcast grow and reach new audiences. Also, make sure to follow us, hit the bell icon so you never miss an episode. If social media is more your style, you can also follow us at Tamini on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, and share our podcast on your favorite platform. Until next time, thanks for listening and being a part of Article 19. Take care.